I have already intimated to you the danger of parties of the state. Let me now take a more comprehensive view, and warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. This spirit, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature, having its root in the strongest passions of the human mind. The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. The radical Democrats have turned into an angry mob. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. You don't hand matches to an arsonist, and you don't give power to an angry left-wing mob. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. The Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. As Speaker of the House, it is my great honor to preside over this sacred ritual of renewal as we gather under the dome of this temple of democracy. With partnership, but with purpose, I pass this great gavel of our government. Today on these steps, we offer this contract as a first step towards renewing American civilization. You know, my father always told me, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And now we need to finish strong for the American people. You're listening to Two Ring Circus, a podcast about Congress. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller professor of American politics at Portland State University in unbeatable Portland, Oregon. In this episode, we examine the pressing problems of partisanship and polarization in America. We'll look at the evolution of parties in the United States and examine their impact on the operation of Congress. American politics is dominated by its two major parties, the Democrats and Republicans, but it hasn't always been so. The founding generation, aware of the dangers of faction and partisanship, hoped that parties wouldn't take root in the American system. George Washington warned against giving in to the spirit of partisanship in his farewell address from the presidency. The disorders and miseries which result gradually inclined the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual, and sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation. Without looking forward to an extremity of this kind, which nevertheless ought not to be entirely out of sight, the common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it the interest and duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. Others in the founding generation hoped that the design of the U.S. Constitution would mitigate the problematic effects of political parties. Among the numerous advantages promised by a well-constructed union, None deserves to be more accurately developed than its tendency to break and control the violence of faction. The friend of popular governments never finds himself so much alarmed for their character and fate as when he contemplates their propensity to this dangerous vice. He will not fail, therefore, to set a due value on any plan which, without violating the principles to which he is attached, provides a proper cure for. The instability, injustice, and confusion introduced into the public councils have, in truth, 
been the mortal diseases under which popular governments have everywhere perished. The same advantage which a republic has over a democracy in controlling the effects of faction is enjoyed by a large over a small republic, is enjoyed by the union over the states composing it. The influence of factious leaders may kindle a flame within their particular states, but will be unable to spread a general conflagration through the other states. A religious sect may degenerate into a political faction in a part of the confederacy, but the variety of sects dispersed over the entire face of it must secure the national councils against any danger from that source. That's James Madison in the famous Federalist No. 10. Unfortunately, Washington's warning went unheeded even by the founding generation, which quickly formed opposing political parties even as Washington was just stepping down from power. And Madison's hope that the extent and design of the Union would mitigate against the dangers of national parties proved to be unfounded. For this episode, we at Two Ring Circus sought to trace the formation and evolution of America's dominant parties. We begin by presenting two short lectures by Dr. Jack Miller, recorded in summer of 2020, on the history of the Democratic and Republican parties. In both of these lectures, Dr. Miller focuses on the enduring spirit of each party, despite the policy changes that have occurred over the course of multiple generations. The enduring spirit as represented by the party's answer to the question, who are the true Americans? This is the central thematic of these lectures, and Dr. Miller traces how the parties evolved around competing answers to this question. The Democratic Party really owes its specific origin to Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren, who were the ones who founded what you could call the Jacksonian Democratic Party, the modern Democratic Party in the late 1820s. But it, it owes really its existence and its spirit, its orientation to the uh, partisan debates of the 1790s where Thomas Jefferson and James Madison formed the Democratic Republican or Jeffersonian Democratic. It's been tagged different things because there was never really an official party name. The modern Democratic Party, the Jacksonian Party, owes its spirit and its basic orientation to that first party clash between the Federalists and the Jeffersonian, Madisonian, Democratic, Republican. Here's why. Who are the true Americans was really answered as a question that was a sort of normative question. Who should the true Americans be? Who should we look to to be driving the future of America? And really, that question organizes the two great parties for the 200 plus years that America has been experimenting with democracy. Who should be the driving force of America's future? The Federalists, were the party that saw the true Americans as merchants, bankers, investors, traders. Not to say that people who weren't uh, members of those groups weren't true Americans, but they saw American development and growth and progress and prosperity as tied fundamentally to those groups, to essentially the rising capitalist class and the drivers of uh, capitalist innovation, capitalist investment, capitalist development. The Federalists saw the future America as a capitalist industrial powerhouse. To Jefferson and Madison, the driving force of America's future was the driving force of what America's past and present were, which were the term that they used was yeoman farmers. A yeoman is essentially a middle class, largely self-sufficient, modest farmer who more or less takes care of himself, his family, is also deeply connected to the community, is deeply connected to the land, is civically engaged. A yeoman farmer is the ideal. While we don't really have a lot of yeoman farmers left, and in fact by the middle of the 19th century and definitely by the beginning of the 20th century, the yeoman farmer was more or less gone, the general orientation that the Jeffersonian Madisonians had 
towards Americans was that regular, hardworking, modest, proud, individualistic people were the driving force of America. The regular Americans. To be kind of blunt about it, to the Federalists, the economic elites were the driving force, and to the Jeffersonian Madisonians, the regular average American were the driving force. The Democratic Party's spirit has always been oriented towards, and I'll air quote this, regular Americans. In other words, to just common folks working hard, taking care of their families, having modest aspirations, trying to live out the whatever version of the American dream, but not uh, seeking riches, not seeking power, not seeking fame, really just being modest, humble, hardworking, proud, independent, largely self-sufficient Americans. Now, that broad description can fit a lot of different groups, and over the course of America's development, that, that description would fit different people. By the late 19th century, that uh, description fit uh, industrial workers much better than it fit yeoman farmers, uh, and so the Democratic Party's orientation towards the electorate shifted around and developed and moved and that's actually one of the things that parties that drives the evolution of parties is they're always seeking to one expand their electoral coalition but two to make sure that their orientation is aligned with the basic group of Americans that sort of represent the spirit that the party itself embodies so the Democratic Party for uh, lack of a better term and to, to uh, simplify at the risk of, of oversimplifying is the party of the regular Americans to the Democratic Party, uh, America belongs to the people who actually are the, the vast bulk, the regular Americans. Now, Jefferson and Madison, interestingly, um, after the demise of the Federalist Party, what happens to the Democratic-Republican Party is that the Federalist Party goes away. And for a brief period, there is a, we have a one-party system. It's sometimes called the era of good feelings, even though there were, of course, always animosities. And the reason it's called the era of good feelings is there wasn't a fundamental partisan clash. There weren't two parties competing for power. With one party and with the Jefferson-Madison folks in power, there actually turned out to be a drift in the direction of the Federalist position. Thomas Jefferson, when he becomes president, actually begins to embrace, or if not philosophically, at least in terms of his action, some of the positions of the Federalists. Basically what happens to the elites within the Jeffersonian-Madisonian party is that gradually and pragmatically they embrace most Federalist policies. So what happens is that there's a Federalist drift within the elites of the one existing political party. But the democratic orientation, the idea that the party is for regular Americans, within the Democratic-Republican Party, there begins to develop, especially as the country moves westward, and regular Americans are now increasingly becoming not only yeoman farmers, but pioneer farmers, 
settlers, like that takes, the, these people are a lot more independent, definitely a lot more independent and more oriented towards their own effort and they have uh, this kind of modesty and humbleness. They really are the uber yeoman farmers heading west into the Louisiana territory that, that Jefferson used his expansive executive power to purchase. There begins to become a division within the only party left, as I think is natural, between these economic elites represented by Jefferson and Madison and their cohorts, the people who used to support the Federalist Party, who don't have any other party to support but the one existing party and are kind of pushing in this direction, and the regular Americans, the frontier Americans, the yeoman farmers, the, essentially the core constituency of the Jeffersonian-Madisonian party in the first place, they start to see the world differently. And what happens is the next generation, after the founding generation that fights the Revolutionary War, writes the Constitution, and fights the first political battles during the first two decades of our constitutional history, that generation is replaced by Andrew Jackson's generation, the generation that rises up during the early 19th century. Jackson himself, from a frontier state, Tennessee, and from a frontier area, and himself spends a lot of time on the frontier as a military officer, um, and has that regular person orientation, they start to become dissatisfied with the, we could call it, federalist drift of policy and orientation within the Democratic-Republican Party. There's an internal tension that after the election of 1824, when there are four Democratic-Republican candidates who run for office, none of them wins the majority of electoral votes, none of them wins the majority of popular votes, Andrew Jackson, the kind of, we could think of him as the populist candidate, himself standing for what he thinks of as original Jeffersonian principles. To him, the Jeffersonian party has drifted from Jeffersonian principles, and I think that he's actually, that's actually pretty accurate. He's representing the constituency of regular Americans. He wins the most votes, he wins the most popular votes and the most electoral votes, but not a majority of either. And then according to the backup mechanism in the Constitution, the House of Representatives chooses the president from among the top two vote-getters. They choose John Quincy Adams because the choosers, the members of the House of Representatives, are establishment Democratic Republicans who see things from the, the way that the political elite see things, and they choose from among their membership, John Quincy Adams, the son of the second president, himself not a Federalist, but has that Federalist orientation, and Jackson and his followers are incensed uh, because they believe that, one, they won the election. Like, he had more votes, but, you know, he didn't win the election. He, he actually lost, uh, according to the rules at play. What Jackson realized, and his lieutenant Martin Van Buren realized, is that they had more votes. Their constituency was larger. In order to not lose another election, or in order to get the power that they believe they deserve because they supported policies oriented towards the regular Americans, the vast majority of Americans, that they had to get organized, form a separate party, and run a campaign that was going to effectively mobilize their core constituency and get the most votes and win the Electoral College outright. And between the election of 1824, where Jackson felt, felt like he got ripped off, and the election of 1828, where Jackson won a resounding victory, Jackson and Van Buren form the modern Democratic Party. Most of what we recognize in modern campaigning, grassroots organization, county, state, and national integration, party tickets, nominating primaries, simplified campaigning with, with campaign mottos and campaign messages, ground game, trying to get turnout, get your voters to come out, 
the, the party slate and uh, collective uh, campaigning, all of the things that are really key still to winning elections in the United States were developed by Jackson and Van Buren because they had a lot of Americans supporting them. The regular Americans way outnumbered the elites. And because voting rights were expanding during this period to include non-property owning white men, they weren't expanding beyond white men, but they were expanding beyond the original gen first generation's restrictions on the voters uh, and office holders being property owners. There were way more regular Americans than there were elites. And so the Jacksonian Democratic Party comes to dominate American politics because they have numbers and they have organization. And I think that one of the things that's key about the Democratic Party is that when you represent the regular Americans, when you not, not just represent them, but that's the spirit of your party, you're oriented towards that, you're gonna, going to have superior numbers. In a democracy, having superior numbers support you in theory isn't good enough. You still have to win the most votes. Jackson and Van Buren, their, part of their genius was to realize also, like, okay, to get the most votes when you represent a large group of people like that, you actually have to also be organized. Uh, and that's, that's what the party developed to do. That's what modern parties are. Modern parties are organized attempts to appeal to and mobilize as large of a voting coalition as you possibly can. The Democratic Party itself, over the course of the following 190 years, has continued to represent this same basic constituency, the regular Americans, right? And, and one of the things that has been problematic for the Democratic Party is that as the American population became more diverse, as it became more spread out, as, as regional differences began showing up, the regular American becomes a more multifaceted group. There are now different versions of the regular American. And one of the things that sort of dooms the Democratic Party during the Civil War and post-Civil War era, where it essentially goes from being the dominant party to being completely eclipsed by the Republicans for several decades, the Northern Democrats and the Southern Democrats saw things differently. And then Western Democrats and Southern Democrats and Northern Democrats see things differently. And the Democratic coalition which in Jackson's time was a relatively unified group of people. It was these yeoman farmers. It was these pioneer people. It was, it was, there were workers, of course, but there weren't that many workers. The regular Americans were a relatively homogenous group of people. The Democratic Party's task since the 1850s, really, has been to find a way to hold together an increasingly diverse and contentious coalition of regular Americans. The Republican Party organized around the sort of wreckage of the Whig Party and taking advantage of the regional splits within the Democratic Party, really organized around the same basic spirit and the same basic set of principles as the Federalist Party and as the elitist drift of the Democratic-Republican Party under Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. The Whig Party had kind of picked it up. The Republican Party, its spirit is that essentially the business community in whatever form that is, and by the middle of the 19th century, the business community is a bigger and more diverse thing than it was during Hamilton's time. But the basic idea is that the investors, 
the manufacturers, the innovators, these are the people who deserve to be paid attention to, supported, benefited by government action. The Republican Party really is, it's born with Abraham Lincoln, just as the Democratic Party is born with kind of the organizational genius of Jackson and, and, and his Lieutenant Martin Van Buren. Abraham Lincoln really, he's the flagship president of the Republican Party. Lincoln, obviously he is pro-emancipation, uh, though really he's pro-union more than pro-emancipation. But part of the reason why the Republican Party is pro-emancipation is because uh, abolitionist reformers didn't have a home in the Democratic Party. So the Republican Party, in order to win elections, in order to have a winning coalition, appeals to the abolitionist reformers draws them in, it's also natural for this business-oriented party, because that's fundamentally what the Republican Party is, even at its birth, is that when you get rid of slavery, you have a nationwide integrated capitalist system of wage earners, as opposed to some wage earners in one region, the North, and some forced laborers, slaves in the South, Slavery and forced labor doesn't fit in with the pro-capitalist view of what the economy should look like. The plantation-based, slavery-based economy is an outdated way. It's inefficient. It really is connected more to a way of life than it is to productivity and efficiency. The Republican Party represents the business perspective and always has in the same way that the Democratic Party represents the regular American. So the Republican Party represents the spirit, essentially, of the business community, and much like the Democratic Party, has had to seek to hold together a sort of diverse coalition. But the task of the Republican Party actually has been a bit different. Of course, you're trying to build a big coalition and trying to appeal to as many different groups of people as possible. When you have this more elitist orientation that the Republican Party has, because the regular Americans are already represented by the Democratic Party, your challenge is how do you get people who don't necessarily naturally belong to your coalition to vote for you? Or how do you make sure that the people who would vote for the other side don't vote for anybody? Republicans, their task is that they inherently represent a smaller group of people. In order to win elections, they have to enlarge that somehow and or they have to hope or work towards the opposition party not being able to enlarge their voter turnout. For really the first 70 years of its existence, from 1860 in, through the end of the 1920s, the Republican Party was aided in that task by the internal divisions in the Democratic Party. When your opposition is fragmented and internally divided and regionally segmented, it's a lot easier to win elections since you don't have to expand your coalition, your opponents are having trouble holding together a larger coalition. And so that's one of the ways that the Republican Party was able to dominate national politics for three generations, for more than a half a century, is essentially by being unified, by having a straightforward orientation, by having definite support from their natural constituency, the business community, which of course has lots of resources. They don't have a lot of votes, but they have a lot of financial resources. They have a lot of influence, a lot of access. They have control over jobs. There are certain natural advantages to having the business community smaller than the regular American community than it, that it is. There are natural advantages to it. But it's a disadvantage because it's smaller in a democracy. Being smaller is a disadvantage. A divided opposition, regionally fragmented opposition is helpful. And in a way, that's really what the Republican Party did during its era of, of dominance. It maintained its 
unity and integrity around the business perspective. things that did happen quickly in the evolution of the Republican Party in terms of its policy stances is that it went from being a activist government party under Lincoln and Grant to being a laissez-faire party under the next generation of Republican presidents, the next couple generations and since then. And that's largely because when the Republican Party was born, American business was not the powerhouse or the force that it would become by the end of the 19th century. There weren't these vast trusts and these big corporations and these wealthy industrialists. They were just getting started. American industry, American business, even American banks were not so big that they didn't need or benefit from government help. And so what Lincoln was for was an activist federal government actively using the resources of the federal government to promote business growth. Transcontinental Railroad, the Homestead Act were just two important parts of actually an activist government benefiting the business community. By the end of the 19th century, when uh, the business community has become powerful, large, there are large industrialists, banks are vast, there's financial and productive influence is, is huge. In the matter of a couple of decades, American business, banks, industry, transportation have all gone from sort of middling size to extraordinarily large and powerful. They no longer need the benefit of the government, and the government now represents a threat to their continued growth, expansion, and economic power. So the Republican Party, staying true to its spirit rather than sticking to the policies that it was born with, becomes the party of laissez-faire. Let's get out of the way of business. Let's not, get, let's not have political power get in the way of economic power. And that's largely been where the Republican Party has been since the late 19th century, a party of less government, not more government. the party oriented towards its fundamental spirit, either the regular Americans or the business community, it's going to change its policy orientation. It's going to change its interpretation of the Constitution. It's going to change its foreign policy orientation. The idea that the Constitution ought to be broadly interpreted was held by the Federalists, was held by the early Republicans. Then, when a broad interpretation of the Constitution actually got in the way of this new laissez-faire orientation, Republicans changed their view on the Constitution. And Democrats, who had a narrow interpretation of the Constitution, they wanted a small federal government, they wanted less government power because that gets in the way of yeomen living the independent life, it gets in the way of uh, regular Americans being free from governmental power. Democrats changed their view on the Constitution to go from a narrow interpretation to a broader interpretation because they want to use government power to benefit regular Americans the same way Republicans wanted to use federal power to benefit the business community. So in a way, your party's interpretation of the Constitution, whether it's an expansive one or a narrow one, depends on whether you see the government as being useful for your electoral coalition or a problem for your electoral coalition. Democrats now tend to see government power as useful for its coalition. Republicans now, for a long time, have seen government power as problematic for its basic coalition.
That is changing and things are getting stirred up. The Republican Party has been embracing certain aspects of a broadened interpretation of the Constitution, a more expansive interpretation of, of executive power particularly, as it seeks to use federal power in different ways than it did 50 years ago to continue expanding or benefiting its core constituency and expanding to get enough voters to win uh, elections. Because one of the things that the Republican Party continually has to do is it has to try to appeal to people to vote for it who aren't part of its natural constituency, who don't belong to the business community. Republicans have had to convince regular Americans that their interests are aligned with the business community as opposed to in conflict with the business community. In doing so, they've had to take different positions that would appeal to those groups. Ronald Reagan did it, Reagan Democrats were a particular type of uh, democratic voter that was traditionally democratic that Reagan was able to appeal to um, by saying, your interests are actually aligned with the business community's interests. Donald Trump is doing that in a different way, right? That group of people that would sort of more traditionally fall under the Democratic Party's coalition of regular Americans, the Republican Party through Trump and through the actions uh, and policies of, of his supporters in the Republican Party is attempting to appeal to that same group. The Republican Party's evolution has been driven by this need to broaden its voter base even when it really can't change its spiritual orientation. The business community, investors, innovators, producers are the core constituency of the Republican Party. Workers, farmers, toilers, the poor, those are the natural constituency of the Democratic Party. There are more regular Americans than there are business-oriented Americans. So the Republican Party has to appeal to as many regular Americans as possible and say, your interests are aligned with the business community. The changes the Republican Party undergoes, the new policies, the new ways that it seeks to interpret and use the constitutional system, are all driven by that underlying need. Democrats is driven by the underlying need to essentially try to hold together an increasingly diverse, internally contentious, and fragmented constituency. So each of the two parties has a natural constituency, and neither one of those parties' natural constituency translates automatically into consistent victory time after time. So what the parties have to be doing as they evolve is adapting to the new environment, adapting to societal changes, technological changes, regional changes, differences in what policies do to different groups because one kind of policy that benefited a group could hurt that group 30 years later. And that's a pretty, tr that's a pretty typical thing as the world changes. So the parties evolve just like any species would evolve in the natural environment. As the environment changes, they have to evolve to be adapted to that ecosystem. And the political ecosystem in our country is winning votes. Both parties are competing to win votes. That's what survival and reproduction in political evolutionary terms comes from, winning votes. How do you win votes? You try to bring together a big coalition. You try to make sure that your opposition is fragmented and small and disorganized. That's how you go about doing it. The two parties are far from static entities, as Dr. Miller's lecture indicates. Each is undergoing a constant internal struggle to control the party's agenda and priorities, and determine its broad values and policy orientation, within the confines of hewing to its essential spirit, of course. 
For our next segment, the Two Ring Circus team discusses the endless battle for the soul of the party that waxes and wanes among both Democrats and Republicans. I'm Bob Sharp. I'm Jack Miller. And I'm Nigel Wilkerson. We've gathered today to talk about the present state of the two parties and to trace the perennial battle for the soul of the party as it's playing out right now in the summer of 2023. Bob, what's your take on what's happening with the Republican Party at the moment, as the GOP presidential race is just beginning to get started? I hate to use the Democratic president's nomenclature to refer to his opponent's party, but President Biden accurately points out that the MAGA Republicans, so-called, while seemingly ascendant at this moment, are attempting to control the future of the GOP, while more traditional fiscal and national security conservatives, what we might think of as establishment Republicans, attempt to regain a dominance they lost with the 2016 primary victory of Donald Trump, who remains the most powerful figure in the party today and is running once again in the Republican presidential primary. Not just running again, Bob, by all accounts leading the pack and on his way to securing the nomination again, despite mounting legal problems. Yes, and of course, mainstream Republicans, any Republican really who cares about defeating a vulnerable Democratic incumbent rather than propping up a particular highly flawed general election candidate, are struggling to figure out how to elevate someone besides Trump to the nomination. To me, this is more than just a struggle between the forever Trumpers and the never Trumpers. I see the primary, and more clearly the internal battles occurring in the Republican-controlled House, as fitting the classic pattern of internal party struggles. Despite Trump's now eight-year dominance of Republican politics, the GOP is really up for grabs right now, in my opinion. Trump did something Republicans all loved. He won a presidential election they thought was a lost cause, and in doing so, activated a huge swath of low-intensity voters who had been largely turned off of politics before Trump came along. The so-called Trump base is a huge political prize for any party striving to win elections. And what Republicans want most of all is to dump Trump but keep his base. So-called MAGA Republicans and more establishment Republicans agree on that much. The question is, of course, how to do that. I think the real struggle is between those who want to essentially abandon the pro-business spirit of the party in favor of attempting to push Democrats out of their lane, and the counter-struggle to prevent that reorientation while still keeping Trump's voters in a fundamentally pro-business party. I agree that there's some effort to turn Trump's hostile takeover of the Republican Party into a second hostile takeover of the Democrats' natural constituency of quote-unquote regular Americans, as you, Dr. Miller, so often call it. Democrats have to share some of this blame having drifted from their core commitment to the working class and adopted a style of identity politics that makes them ripe for ongoing losses among the disaffected and socially conservative white working class that should, historically, be solid Democrats. Establishment Republicans, on their hand, made themselves vulnerable to Trump's takeover of their party by aligning with a globalist policy agenda that, until Trump came along, was increasingly problematic for the so-called Reagan Democrats who gave the Republican Party its biggest inroad with regular Americans. And Democrats are vulnerable, too, because they're not really able to stay focused on a pro-working-class policy agenda, even though I do think President Biden has been trying to do just that, to get the Democratic Party back to its New Deal fundamentals. Right, and that's the battle that's going on in the Democratic Party. Progressives against what are being called moderates, but which, I agree with you here, Bob, are really better understood as classic New Deal Democrats. The New Deal was the Democratic Party's comeback from fragmentation, loss, and irrelevance, and the New Deal coalition put together by FDR gave the party half a century of political dominance. I think any Democrat would love to rebuild that coalition. Well, some Democrats want to rebuild it, Biden, for example, but others are looking ahead to a different type of winning coalition, having written off the socially conservative and aggrieved white working class. And it does seem like an intractable problem for Democrats to try making inroads with the Trump base. There's not exactly a wave of Biden Republicans coming along to counteract the exodus represented by the Reagan Democrats. The Democratic Party's inner struggle, to my mind, isn't necessarily between moderates and liberals within the party, so much as between the old-school liberal economic policy orientation of the New Deal and a 21st century leftist social policy orientation associated more with identity politics and social justice causes. I think so-called moderates and progressives, Biden and Elizabeth Warren, for example, are very close on economic policy. The difference I see is really more generational. It's the gap between Biden and AOC that, to me, is the real battle in the Democratic Party. 
Biden and Bernie and Elizabeth Warren could all agree on an economic policy agenda with few differences in detail. And Biden has done pretty well patching up the Democratic coalition by sustaining that commitment. And on paper, that should do something to make inroads with the Trump base. But the Democratic Party is basically anathema to the kind of social conservatives that were core to the New Deal coalition. And there doesn't seem to be much that can be done to remedy that. It does seem like Republican struggles right now are more existential. The Trump reorientation could possibly leave the country without a party dedicated to the business community, or maybe push the Democratic Party into becoming a fundamentally more pro-business party than it already is. Which, if you look at the policy record, it is very business-friendly and has been at least since the Clinton administration. I agree. Clinton came along at a vulnerable time for Democrats, with the loss of Reagan Democrats loosening their half-century grip on Congress. And after what were initially pretty ugly battles with House Republicans in 95, Clinton seemed to swing the Democratic Party in a decidedly pro-business direction. From the mid to late 90s, on economic issues, we basically had a one-party system, even on things like crime and foreign policy. I want to pick up on Bob's statement that the Republican struggle is an existential one. It seems like all internal party battles are existential, but really, how non-pro-business would even a fully magnified Republican party be? Aren't the culture wars really just a way of getting the white working class to vote against its material interests? After all, what was the Republican party's one major accomplishment under unified government after Trump's victory? Tax cuts. No border wall, no immigration overhaul, no really meaningful America first economic policy, no real benefits to Trump's working class fans at all. I agree. And the other major victory, swinging in the Supreme Court to a post-Roe majority, has clearly backfired as an electoral strategy. I think a lot of Republicans are actually really regretting that. Abortion is definitely hurting Republicans, for sure, but they're shifting pretty deftly to the education and transgender fronts in the culture war as a way of keeping the socially conservative base fired up and in the Republican camp. I actually do agree with Bob that the MAGA Republicans represent the potential for an existential shift in the Republican Party from a pro-business small government party to an anti-diversity large government party. That, I think, is exactly what a guy like Ron DeSantis represents. And there are plenty of Republicans in Congress who would love to carry water for his Florida agenda done at the national level. The fully magnified Republican Party would gladly go to war with American corporations, which, like the younger generation, has been moving in a socially liberal direction for a while. All for profit, of course, but with the increasingly diverse and identity-focused American population, smart business aligns with the social agenda of the Democratic Party as much as it aligns with the traditional economic agenda of the Republican Party. From what we're saying, it seems as though much of the partisan divide, as well as the internal party struggles, center around non-economic issues. And even though some Republicans are still anti-tax and anti-spending, and Democrats are largely comfortable with progressive taxation and large amounts of social welfare spending, that traditional divide is less salient now than it's ever been. I think that's a good way of putting it. Democrats and Republicans are still squared off on taxation and spending policy the same as always. But the way that electoral battles get fought, both primaries and general elections, today, it maybe looks like the traditional contours of economic policy are fairly marginal to the battles going on both between and within the two major parties. I would agree with that also. It's one reason why even on the passage of symbolic bills in the Republican-controlled House, bills that have no chance in the Senate and are purely for signaling voters, why some Republicans are blocking their own party's efforts to bring these bills up for a vote. That's one of the venues they have to try to advance their existential hostile takeover of the party, and I think they're making use of it. I know there's a ton more we could talk about, gentlemen, but that seems like a good place to end our chat today. Agreed. Thanks for gathering today, gentlemen. This has been both fun and enlightening, and I don't get both of those things at the same time very often. That's it for episode 9, Washington's Nightmare, our exploration of parties. Are we in fact living in Washington's nightmare of partisanship that he so forcefully warned us against? It would seem so. 
Though the partisan clash that's a perennial feature of our politics is an ever-evolving battle that reflects underlying tensions in the American population and changing technological, cultural, and global conditions. This has been a long episode, but there's still so much to say, and it is an ongoing battle that will never end. I want to thank Bob Sharp and Nigel Wilkerson for contributing to Two Ring Circus, and Fishbone for providing the soundtrack for this episode with Party at Ground Zero, their late 80s counterculture hit. In our next episode, we turn to conflicts between Congress and the Supreme Court. For now, here's more Fishbone. Party at Ground Zero, baby, 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 baby,